0: Hello, I'm Dr Kat Arney. This podcast is part of a mini-series of interviews with speakers from the 2022 Annual Conference of the Adelphi Genetics Forum, a learned society that aims to promote research and discussion concerning the scientific understanding of human heredity. Formerly known as the Galton Institute, and before that, the Eugenics Education Society, the society has changed its name to the Adelphi Genetics Forum to firmly reject and distance itself from the discredited and damaging ideas of its namesake, Francis Galton, widely viewed as the founder of eugenics. This year's conference, titled Living with the Eugenic Past, brought together expert speakers to grapple with the problem of how best to tackle the subject of eugenics. What are the demands of justice when it comes to the victims of eugenics? How should universities and other institutions involved in eugenics deal responsibly with that involvement? And can present-day biology education and research be improved to help safeguard the future from the mistakes of the past? The last lecture of the day was given by Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor of Law and Director of the Centre for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at the University of California, Irvine, and also a Senior Lecturer at Harvard Medical School. Her talk focused on how the long shadow of eugenics and white supremacy persist into the present day and remain embedded in contemporary political frameworks, and why this pernicious ideology is taking so long to die. So, How does she start thinking about such a complex and challenging topic?
1: I think it's important that we understand the power of eugenics as having fueled some of the darkest moments of human history and the legacies of those histories remain alive for us. If we think about the moments of colonialism, the brutalities of American slavery, if we think about the Holocaust, then that gives us the seeds of what it is that we're speaking to today, what I'm speaking to. But I think it's also important that we understand the political legacies of those periods do not die. And it's not just health and medicine. It's not simply what rogue doctors may do, instructed over a period of time by a government. But these are matters of government. These are matters of government and how... They stereotype certain people, how they stigmatize certain people, and how those stereotypes and those stigmas then reach beyond medicine, and they reach into the very social fabric of our countries, how we think about some people as being more criminal than others, how we think about some people as being less capable than others, how we think about some people as worthy of greater surveillance than others and greater prosecution than others and what all of these things spread into for future generations. Our mistake is thinking of eugenics as captured only in one specific period of time rather than understanding how its roots flower into things that may be weeds or may flower into the very institutions and institutional fabrics that continue to govern our countries.
0: This conference Some of the talks are really tracing the legacy of eugenics from Francis Galton's original ideas and naming of the subject through to its spread through the world, some of the atrocities that are being carried out in the name of eugenics. It may surprise people to know that the US had formal eugenics policies. And eugenics is something we think of as in the past. How did these policies kind of come to be enacted and have they really gone away?
1: It's really important to understand the U.S. role in eugenics and how in many ways that legitimized what came after. The very platforms carried out by the Third Reich, Hitler, and the Nazis were borrowed from, not all, but certainly its eugenics policy, almost verbatim from U.S. law. U.S. law that was actually contested up to our Supreme Court upheld by the United States Supreme Court in an infamous case, perhaps one of the worst cases in the United States Supreme Court history. The Supreme Court upheld a Virginia law in a case called Buck v. Bell. It's a 1927 case that involved a poor white child who had been 16 years old when she was raped and then had a child out of wedlock. The state of Virginia was rounding up people like this young girl named Carrie Buck. The state of Virginia was placing children like Carrie and also older individuals in what it called the uh, a Virginia Asylum, essentially, the colony, the Virginia colony. And at the Virginia colony, they were sterilizing these individuals coercively. Carrie's case was really a test case. She had a lawyer that represented her, but he had eugenics sympathies. So it wasn't as if she was really receiving full legal counsel by the man who represented her. And in this case, the United States Supreme Court considered whether this law was constitutional. And in a case written by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes, he said three generations of imbeciles are enough and that the power that the state has to impose inoculation is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. He said better than to let them starve for their imbecility. Society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. This case, this decision, opened the door for the rest of the world to legitimize eugenics and the Nazis walked right through it. But it also meant that in the United States, they weren't slow about this. Immediately campaigns took off in states all across the US to ramp up eugenic sterilizations. And in fact, the coming attraction at movies where today we hear about the next big thriller that's coming out, the next big Marvel film. But in the United States, at this time, after this decision, the coming attractions were about how many people have been sterilized. And this is where states are purposefully advertising, proudly advertising, how many future generations are going to get rid of, of people who are like Carrie Buck. And what's also important that we understand with this is that today, much of how eugenics is understood is as getting rid of the unwanted race. At this time, whiteness had 36 different categories. And so it's important to understand the white supremacy within whiteness. There was the effort to do away with poor white people. They were seen as a distinct race, not like elite white people. Poor white people were thought to be infectious, genetically infectious. And the goal was to make sure that they would not reproduce and that somehow they could become eradicated. And what's curious about all of this is this sort of idea that you can get rid of people who are suffering from certain social conditions that have been imposed upon them and not the address of those social conditions, but instead to get rid of those people.
0: Where do we still see the vestiges of this thinking today? Is it still there? Do we have to look hard for it or is it still there in in society today?
1: We don't have to look very hard for it at all, sadly. I mean, one argument could be that eugenics is is over, even though in the United States, Buck v. Bell has never been overturned, right? But the idea is that after Nuremberg, where there were actual prosecutors from the United States who went to Germany and prosecuted the Nazi doctors, the affirmative defense that came out of those doctors was to say, how could you dare come here and be so hypocritical and prosecute us when we only took up your U.S. law, which you've not even overturned? Now that aside, because this is not a vibrant conversation in the United States, many people are completely unfamiliar with the case Buck v. Bell. They're completely unfamiliar with this history in the United States. They're completely unfamiliar that our state fairs, which today are pin the ribbon on the donkey, on the cow, on the horse, we're pin the ribbon on the whitest family. I mean, in the United States there are photos that show us of the fitter family contest where at state fairs there were mock houses that were built in big title in the front of it, fittest family. And these fittest families looked exactly like what was being attempted in Nazi Germany a decade later, There's this blondest child, the bluest eye, these were the fit families, and these families would get pinned with the ribbon or the medal because you are exactly what our society is striving for. So what does this mean in terms of fast forward? Well, there's been a consolidation in many ways of what whiteness is, but white supremacy, the very underlying of these policies of this thinking, persist. What does this mean in terms of a global economy and what does it mean in the U.S.? Well, we see the rise of fascism. We see the rise in the continuance of these ideas that there is something about white supremacy, that there are certain people who just simply are genetically inferior, who are mentally inferior because of the ethnicity of these people and so forth. And in contemporary times in the United States, we see this in how we police We see this in education. We see this in lack of opportunity. I mean, across myriad areas, we see where there is just profound discrimination that persists. And here's just one slice of it, which I think helps to crystallize it in medicine. Less than a decade ago, researchers uh, studied a group of, of medical students at the University of Virginia, and they wanted to have a sense of whether medical students today Carry some of the beliefs that were embedded. One could say in eugenics, which are these discriminatory beliefs about black people have different blood types, um, that their skin density is different, that they feel pain differently. Now, what was interesting about the study is that it was, you know, medical students of today, not of 80 years ago, not of 100 years ago when Buck V. Bell was. And what was alarming is that in the United States in contemporary times, there are medical students who answered, well, yes, black people and white people feel pain differently. That yes, black people have denser skin than white people do. That yes, uh, black blood and white blood are different. They coagulate differently. And this tells us something about the legacies of eugenics about how they persist today in medicine and what that means in terms of medical interaction with different groups of people.
0: Is it possible to think about or or comprehend the cost of eugenic thinking to society, perhaps in in the US and globally? We have the figures of how many people died in the Holocaust under the Nazis, but is it possible to think about how we comprehend and and quantitate the, the scale of the things that have been done in the name of this philosophy?
1: It is a great question, right? And that question is about how have those seeds sprouted in myriad ways beyond the narrow category in which we saw them a century ago. And one could say that it is almost too large to calculate. If we think about it in terms of what this kind of thinking does in terms of how it harms people, how it actually affects their well-being and their health. Dr. David Williams, who's at Harvard, who studies the effects of racism in people's health, says that these legacies basically result in the equivalent of a jumbo jet full of black people crashing every day, just in terms of how black people die as a result of these discriminatory patterns that persist and manifest today in terms of their health. That is to say that when we think about eugenics, sometimes it's thought of isolated in a silo. It's just about a perception of genetic inferiority and it's left there without there being any action against those people or those people actually internalizing it somehow. But what we've come to understand, and I think it's important that we think about it this way, is that eugenical types of thinking actually legitimizes a different kind of treatment of people. And that different kind of treatment can be very harmful to those people. How do people internalize that different kind of treatment when you're not offered the job that you were qualified for, when you don't get the medical care that you actually deserve, Uh, When you have a higher rate of suspension or expulsion in school simply because you're brown or you're black, right? How do those things manifest inside the body? Well, they manifest in hypertension, high blood pressure, and many other kinds of conditions that are corrosive to individual's health. And they lead to higher rates of death. And that is the point about thinking about the legacies of eugenics not dying and persisting with us today. So what will it take to kill off this pernicious thinking? This is an excellent question. I do think it's possible to round the bin, but one critical ingredient, in terms of how we advance beyond this, means recognizing it, It means acknowledging it. That's always the first step. And if you think about where we are as a global society, or just take the U.S. for an example, There's tremendous backlash right now to addressing any of America's history that happens to be a dark place in history. And much of our dark place in history, just based on fact in the United States, happens to involve colonialism, happens to involve slavery, happens to involve Jim Crow. All of that stitched together as part of a eugenical thinking that there are certain people who are genetically inherently inferior. And then the next step beyond that is, and then we can treat those people accordingly. If they're indigenous people, we can march them off their land and place them on reservations. If they happen to be people of African descent, then we can enslave those people. And then even after enslavement, we can treat those people in this new legal paradigm that we call separate but equal. Well, currently in the United States right now, there is a real backlash about teaching children any of this, right? And if we don't acknowledge these seeds, these roots, then it's very hard to kill them off. So one critical aspect is really an ability for us to talk about, to acknowledge, and to think forward. In some ways, a truth and reconciliation commission that's needed globally in terms of our past, in order for us to shape healthier futures.
0: Thanks to Michelle Goodwin. You can find out more about the Adelphi Genetics Forum, including their grants, awards and publications, at adelphigenetics.org. You can check out the rest of this series on the Genetics Unzipped podcast feed. Just search for Genetics Unzipped on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This series was produced by the team at First Create the Media, That's Kat Arney, Sally LePage and Emma Verner, with help from Ed Prosser and Frankie Pike. Our music is Drops of H2O by Jay Lang, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening and goodbye.